You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. always say look back to learn look forward to plan and make sure that right now you're in the moment it's the only way to operate if you want to be a top performer there is no question you need to learn continuously and learning how to learn from your experiences both good and bad may be one of the greatest skills you can possess and yes you also definitely have to plan. Being able to understand where you are currently at and where you wanna go is another invaluable skill and being able to lay out a clear and concise strategy for getting from point A to point B is something that can set you apart. We can get so caught up focusing on outcomes and the what ifs of performance that it's easy to lose sight of what's really important in practice and competition, the process. It's the process that will ultimately lead you to success. So again, we look back to learn, we look forward to plan, and we totally embrace the process, which means you have to be in the moment. I'm about to go on assignment here for a couple of weeks, and it's all about elite athlete and player performance, but with a cool twist this time. I'm going to be coaching top coaches. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to have to be 100% focused on the process and totally in the moment. So with that, I'd like to work with you on a couple of things. I'd like to look back and learn with you. Then I'd like to look forward to plan. Also, we can figure out how to get much more out of the moments we're in. Looking forward, we are coming to the end of 2023. It's in sight now. In 2024, we have some very cool things planned here at Crush Performance, and it's all to help you maximize your potential and performance in sport. If you're an athlete, it's about getting to the next level. Even if you are currently a pro athlete, there's always ways to get better. If you're a parent, we'll be talking about what you need to know to support and guide your athlete through this sporting landscape that's out there. There are things you have to know if you have a child who loves sport. And if you're a coach, we all know that you play a critical role in athlete and player development and at every level of sport. I'm going to share with you everything I know about creating incredible athletes who can then be coached to become incredible players. And if you're new to the show, each year we identify a major theme that we investigate over the course of the year. Typically, we dedicate one show per month to our theme, talking with renowned experts in the field, and then we work to connect the dots to improve our sport performance. We've had some incredible themes over the years, from the Crush War on Sugar to our Obesity and Diabetes series, to Talent and Talent ID, the Crush Brain Game, Performance Vision, among many, many others. For our 2024 season, our 19th year on the air, our main theme is going to be the incredible topic of perception. We'll be talking with some of the world's top experts, researchers, and sports scientists to get a clear understanding of what perception actually is, how it works, and most importantly, how we can use it to improve your sport performance. I think this one is going to be very special, and I can't wait. But that's looking ahead. To get ready for that, why don't we look back? As I'm going to be totally immersed coaching some of the top coaches in the world for the next few weeks, why don't we look back at some of my favorite crush interviews? 
I've picked three, which was really tough. There are so many great conversations from over the years, hundreds and hundreds of incredible interviews and conversations, but I chose these three. There's just so much to learn here. They span a good number of years, and from all the listener feedback, these three really resonated with you, the Crush listeners. If you take these three Crush conversations and put them together, it's like a mini masterclass in human performance. Even if you've heard these before, I encourage you to get in the moment and really take them in again. You'll already have the context of these conversations and you just may very well get more out of them the second time around. I know I always pick something new up. And if this is your first time hearing these interviews, well, I'm not gonna lie, I wish I was you. You know, I have a couple of movies that I wish I could erase from my memory and see them again for the first time. I loved them so much. They impacted me in a way that just can't be recreated. These three interviews are just like that for me. I wish I could do them all over again for the first time. So here's the plan. The week of November 29th, roughly three weeks from now, we'll go back to 2016 and an incredible conversation we had with former mafia boss for New York's feared Colombo crime family, Michael Franzese. At his peak, he was earning upwards of $8 million per week on illegal and legitimate business dealings. He is ranked as one of the most powerful and wealthy mob bosses in history and the biggest money earner since Al Capone. I met Michael through Major League Baseball, where after being released from jail, he was working to help raise awareness on corruption in sport. This is an incredible conversation about crime, sport corruption, and the unbelievable system the mafia used to generate loyalty, fear, and money. Lots and lots of money. Then, on November 22nd, we go back again to a fantastic discussion with investigative reporter and author David Epstein as we dove into his crush must-read book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Not only do we discuss his findings, but we go beyond that to the stories of how he went about collecting all of the information that filled the pages of his number one New York Times bestseller. So much fun. And that brings us to this week, episode one of our three-part Looking Back series. This week, we go back a couple of years to one of my personal all-time favorites. This interview was part of our organizational and team performance theme, and it simply rocks. I'm proud to share once again our talk with award-winning journalist and author, Joan Ryan, as we discussed her crush must-read best-selling book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. If you want to know how successful teams and organizations operate, this is a must-listen interview. Does team chemistry actually exist? Is there scientific or mathematical proof? Is team chemistry as real and relevant as on-base percentages and wins above replacement? In this episode with Joan, we discover that the answer to all of the above is a resounding yes. So I hope you enjoy the next few episodes of Crush Performance as we look back to learn. Let's kick it off right now. Here's our incredible conversation with Joan Ryan. And we're joined now by Joan Ryan, an acclaimed journalist and author of five books. Her groundbreaking book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes was named one of the top 100 sports books of all time by Sports Illustrated. 
and we are here to talk to her about her latest publication, the fantastic book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Joan, welcome to Crush Performance. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really um, excited that you're excited, and I'm looking forward to this conversation because, as you know from reading the book, I'm a total team chemistry geek, and I think I would have continued to research that book for another 10 years, but the publisher finally had to rip it out of my hands and say, (laughs) come on, you're done. Let's publish this thing. Yeah, right. Well, and again, that's interesting to note. It was a long game, wasn't it? This is sort of, um, if we look at how the book came around, Joan, and and what led you to actually writing it, it sounds to me like it was just sort of a connecting of the dots of all your experiences and, and your curiosity as to what makes teams tick. You've been around sports forever. You've seen characters in sport from all different levels and um i it sounds like uh you know going back for years you started connecting some dots that brought you to the idea of intangibles in the book yeah that's exactly right jeff um really that the the germ of the idea to look into team chemistry happened in 2009 and the book ended up coming out in 2020 but (laughs) it was at a reunion of the 1989 San Francisco Giants team that won the National League pennant that year. And um, and it was also the Earthquake World Series, as uh, those of us old enough to remember that. <laughs> That's what that, that year was, too. And, right. And I was a fairly youngish uh, sports columnist at the time. I had moved from Florida to San Francisco. And, um, you know, the 87, 88, 89 Giants, and particularly the 89 Giants, just captivated me and I loved you know it was always difficult as a woman you know to go into clubhouses and locker rooms and and all the rest of it is you know it's it's uncomfortable but um I just loved going into that clubhouse because it was just full of these characters that would you know they fought with each other and they needled each other and you could see in their eye they loved each other openly and without reservation. And so I just was like, oh, I want to be part of them. I want to be part of that tribe because there was such this sense of of belonging and commitment to each other. So that was in 1989, now forward to 2009. And um, I had left the newspaper business and I was, um, and still am, the media consultant for the Giants. And so I attended this reunion in a big white tent in the parking lot of um, what is now Oracle Park, their new at the time and fairly new downtown ballpark. And I, these guys showed up from Horsehead, New York, and you know Yuma, <laughs> Arizona. I mean, they came from all corners of the country to to be with each other again. And as I walked through that tent. Again, you could see it in their eyes and hear it in their voices. They still loved each other. And I kept hearing two words in their conversation, team chemistry. This was the best team chemistry team they'd ever been on. And, and it was just such a palpable feeling of, you know, beyond camaraderie. I mean, it was just this total bond that lasted over all these years. So I'm driving home. And this was a few years after Moneyball, which I loved as as a book. And, um, and, you know, there were, as Bruce Bochy, our former manager at the Giants, we call the propeller heads in the front office. Um, <laughs> you know, all these analytics, Ivy League guys, 
you know, coming up with the algorithms and all these strategies and, uh, you know, everything was numbers. And that's how baseball, as you know, you know, was totally shifting that direction. And as I was driving home, I was thinking, you know, I all in on the analytics and I understand the skepticism about team chemistry because, you know, people will say, oh, it's something that, you know, an underdog team wins and all of a sudden everybody explains it away by saying they had team chemistry. But, you know, does anybody really know what team chemistry is? So, And that's what struck me. I was like, oh, I never really thought about, well, what is this thing we call team chemistry? Because it certainly seemed real to me, certainly walking through that party tent and also just my experience through sports. It's like you could just feel it with certain teams. So it just sparked my curiosity to start, you know, answering three questions. One is, does team chemistry, as we understand it, actually exist? Or is it that thing we just sort of make up? It's sort of mythical. And if it does exist, what is it exactly? What creates that team chemistry? What is this thing that's, you know, uh, bouncing between all of us that, that connects us in this really interesting, special way? And then finally, which, you know, is the, the biggest question, how does it affect performance? Because if team chemistry doesn't affect performance, why are we even talking about it? So for the next 10 years, <laughs> as I was working for the Giants and writing another book in the meantime on uh, the Molina brothers and their dad, um, I just kept researching, researching, researching and getting more and more excited about uncovering what is this thing we call team chemistry. Well, Joan, I am certainly glad you did. For anybody um, who is involved in sport, uh, even as a, a fan or a recreational athlete, this book is a fascinating read on sport and sport performance. And I can't tell you how appropriate and how glad I am to have this conversation on our kickoff show, our first pitch show of 2022, so to speak, as we launch our 2022 campaign theme of organizational and team performance. And this idea of team chemistry, you're right, has been so elusive. Joan, I, I really, really thought it was brilliant how you kicked off the book, talking about that incredible story about your family and you connected it some to some research from way back when, but this whole idea of failure to thrive. I thought, you know, in hindsight, mm. uh, once I was done the book, I'm going, okay, I get it, Joan. I really understand what you're trying to say there. Uh, the power of environment, the connection of people uh, to kick the book off like that. Was that an afterthought or was that something you said, okay, this is how I'm going to kick this off? I did not know this is how I was going to kick this off. Um, and I did it that way. And let me give your your listeners just a little bit of background on failure to thrive and it, it's really got kind of a, well let me just tell the story yeah. of my family and then the reason why I opened the book that way so my mother died very suddenly um a few years back and nine months later my father who really had nothing wrong with him other than he was 80 years old he then died right after her and he had over those nine months after my mother died suddenly he had 
became frail. He stopped, really kind of stopped eating, was befuddled by the telephone and the remote control. And he just kept diminishing, diminishing and failing um, in his health. And doctors, we'd take him to doctors. They said, you know, there's nothing diagnosably wrong with him. And when he died on his death certificate, the cause of death was this phrase, failure to thrive. And I had heard about this phenomenon. I guess it was in college, you know, you're studying biology and, and that sort of thing. And it's about these, um, the orphans back in the turn of the last century who in Romania and Great Britain, who the, the caretakers, the people who ran the orphanage on these, you know, newborn babies, they said, okay, in order to stop the spread of disease, we are ordering all of you to touch the babies as little as possible, just when you're feeding them, changing them, um, you know, bathing them. And they actually, you know, erected these uh, plastic sheets between each of the the cradles and um, and they did that for the best of reasons. Well, soon these babies were dying in droves. I mean, at one of the orphanages, every single baby died. And the babies who didn't die in these other orphanages were almost always cognitively delayed, that their brains never fully formed. And so all the doctors were flummoxed, gosh, we're doing the right things and these babies are dying. And it wasn't until 40 years later when a researcher named Renee Spitz really looked into this and discovered, and this has been validated, you know, a million times since, that babies need touch, they need someone, they need someone's voice, they need to feel the beat of another's heart. They need, our brains are hardwired for connection. And in fact, we cannot survive well, we certainly can't thrive, and we often cannot survive, as the example of my father and these babies, without that meaningful connection with each other. And that's when the, you know, the sort of the fireworks went off in my head. I was like, okay, there's a biological component, a huge biological component to team chemistry, because we are very specifically wired as human as human beings. And so it turned out, which made the research all the more fascinating, that really to study team chemistry, as much as we put it in the sports or the business arena, is really the study of human nature and how we lift each other, how we diminish each other too, how everything about us as human beings is contagious. So when you put the right group of people together, that kind of connection with each other, that physiological, biological connection on top of the psychology and mindset and, and all of those can create these extraordinarily high performing teams. We're talking with Joan Ryan, 
award-winning author and journalist about her incredible book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Uh, that's an incredible story. And, and I really get it. It resonated with me, Joan. And I'm telling you, when I got into the book, uh, the dots started connecting right away. And I was fascinated by the whole thing. You know, in the opening, you talk about things like tribe and, you know, um, or organizational hierarchy, roles to play. Um, and then you get into this uh, chapter one, into this incredible idea um, that, again, comes out of a, it's a human thing. It's beyond sport. It's beyond business. It's a human thing. This whole idea um, uh, that you can complete me, uh, you know, as a human, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that we're connected and we're nobody, nobody is complete by themselves. I thought that was just a, an unbelievable segue. Mm -hmm. And also some incredible insight for any coach, parent or business owner out there. There is a lot to take away here. Right, right. And, you know, another one of those aha moments was when I read this book called, what is General it? Theory of His Love? General Theory of Love. Right. Thank you, Jeff. Yep. Yes, <laughs> General Theory of Love. And I was reading that. And again, it was a physiological uh, a book about the physiology of love. And Thomas Lewis, one of the authors of that, had this like mind-blowing sentence in there that said, each of us, none of us is a whole on our own. Each of us have open loops that only others can complete. And I thought, wow, that's everything that I was, I was trying to figure out. So I tracked him down and it turned out he lived right down the street from me in Sausalito where his office was. No yeah, his kidding. office right down the street. I know. Bizarre, isn't it? So I go to his office and... It, we had the most fascinating conversation because I said, you have to, you know, enlighten me, you know, about these open loops. And he said, okay, you know how, when you're talking with certain people, you're in contact, you know, you're in, in interaction, interacting with certain people that you feel somehow funnier, you know, or you're smarter and you have certain friends that you're like that with. And I was like, yes, I am not, naturally a funny person but with this one friend i am genuinely funny genuinely <laughs> funny and i'm like okay what i said yeah so what's all that about and he said yes he said because that other per the 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 um interaction between the two of you creates something new in each of you and he said we are how did he put it that there is no, he said, there is no you in the way you think there is, Joan. That's what he says to me. And I said, so are they just like pulling something out of me that's already in me? And he said, no, it, he, that other person is creating it in you because of your, your very um, specific connection. And um, so I thought about that. And, and he said, there is no you the way you think there is, there is only you in connection, meaning that there is only you in relationships. So when we think about this, like who you are with your siblings or who you are with your parents or who you are with your boss or who you are with, you know, your friend from college, as opposed to the friend you met, you know, through your kid's school, you are a different you, not hugely different, but slightly different. And so we need each other to, 
and I keep saying bring those things out in it, but it's not. But it's it's tapping. There's really no word for it because it's not even tapping into something in us. It's just this synergy, this quote chemistry that happens when the two of us are interacting with each other. And how does that happen? It happens through, well, you know, going back, you mentioned sort of like cavemen, you know, back in the tribal era that our brains evolved over 3 million years and they grew and they grew and they grew. And of course we would think, oh, well, they're growing to, you know, boy, just, just be able to house all of that intellectual wiring because we are the most intelligent creature on the face of the earth. And the truth is it kept growing bigger and bigger to house all the social wiring because our social wiring is what has kept us alive more than our intellectual wiring because we need each other. We don't survive without each other. And so, um, with that, where was I going with this? Oh, we are, I mean, tribalism is our most deeply rooted human behavior. We're born to belong to tribes. And, um, and that really, it's like, you know, the cavemen were our first teams, you know, and we all need our teams. And it just, it just led me very smartly to, really looking at the stories in the clubhouses and understanding what those interactions were all about. Oh, no. Fascinating. I guess that does kind of go back to like the study of, of sociology, right? I mean, we'd look at mm-hmm. teams and tribes and belonging and ultimately people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to have purpose. They want to be um, um, needed or they want to contribute at least. And I guess maybe that's what a team is like. You know, Joan, you mentioned the analytics before, you know, and I keep looking at this crazy world of sport now and how in the blink of an eye in the historical context, it has changed 360 degrees. And I wonder if we haven't lost some of the art of the game through all these numbers and all these analytics, right? There's just no replacing these relationships. I mean, you mentioned it in the book, you know, proof of team chemistry. When you mentioned the idea that, you know, um, uh, successful teams, you see like matching hairstyles, you know, the guys will dye their hair or they'll go mohawks. You see high fives or you see them interacting. Or one of the important things I think you mentioned, and I think this goes back to the idea of real human chemistry is just the body contact, the, the, the high fives, mm-hmm. the slap on the back, the arm around the shoulder, the, the little hugs, the guys, you see that all the time on teams that are tight, right? You really do see that. Yeah. I don't think there's any numbers. Wouldn't it be fascinating, Joan, if the analytics guys could come up with some sort of master plan to figure out that equation? I don't think it exists, but boy, <laughs> oh boy, I guess we've been trying forever. Well, and that's, you know, obviously the biggest challenge of writing about team chemistry and understanding team chemistry is that you can't measure it. Right. We don't have the tools yet to measure it, but someday there may be tools to measure it, just like there was never a way we didn't know how to measure the speed of light. You know, we didn't know light sped, (laughs) you know, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. It just means we didn't know how to quantify it. We didn't know how to express it in numbers. And that's where we are with team chemistry and with our brains in general. You know, we're constantly sending signals to each other at all times, you know, through our facial expression, tone of voice, body language, even odor. I mean, everything about another person 
is um, is information, and it's that's where the contagion comes. You know, we can we share each other's we can we can intuit we we recognize each other's moods, mindsets. Mm-hmm. That's the way we understand what somebody is feeling is through all these signals that we pick up without even knowing it. Right. Right. And I think, you know, when you talk and when you talk about touch and how important touch is, and this was another aha moment. It's like, oh, that's why these players are always, you know, patting each other, have their arms around each other. I mean, men, especially in sports, they are way more physical and affectionate with each other than men out in the real world. <laughs> you know, Amen, there's yeah. something about, you know, yeah, athletes and sports and team. And of course, it's the same for women, but I think women are more naturally comfortable with showing affection to each other. But the, the reason why all of that touching and, um, and physical connection matters to team chemistry is that it releases meaningful touch. You know, somebody slinging their arm around another one, meaningful touch releases this hormone in our brain called oxytocin and that oxytocin gets into our bloodstream and leaves us with creates this sense of bonding and connection and trust with the person who we are in you know physical interaction with now like an example and i use this in the book so that we had a player at the Giants a few years back, Matt Duffy. And young guy, you know, he was a rookie walking into the big Giants clubhouse for the first time. And he still has, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, the spray of acne on his face. And he's, you know, underweight and, you know, just that gawky guy walking into a, a clubhouse. And you can just see in his eyes, you know, it's like, oh, wow. You know, he's in awe and he's scared out of his mind, you know, like, oh, do I really belong here? And he goes, looks for his locker, gets to his locker and who shows up right beside him. But, you know, one of the big stars of the Giants at the time, Hunter Pence. Right. Usually charismatic guy. And Hunter Pence goes up to him, puts his arm around him, literally puts his arm around him and said, you know, Duff, you're exactly the guy we need right now. We are so glad you are here and you're going to kill it. You're going to kill it. I've seen you, you know, I've seen clips of you playing down in the minor leagues. You're the guy. Well, and I'm watching this and Matt Duffy's body, face, everything changes. (laughs) He is relaxed. He's, and then gets energized by this. His face lights up. And later on, I, and then I didn't, actually witness this, but what happens, this whole contagion of connection and bonding. So, you know, what happens in Duffy's head, you know, his brain is just pumping out this oxytocin. He's feeling connected in a, in a way that would indicate they'd known each other for years, but he feels really bonded and connected to Hunter Pence and he feels trusted. He feels totally trusted that this guy truly trusts him to deliver what that team needs. Now, let's say there's a guy across the clubhouse watching this, you know, a youngish guy watching this. Now, we have mirror neurons in our brain. And what do mirror neurons do? 
when you're looking at something, especially this kind of meaningful interaction that's meaningful to the person observing it, your brain with its mirror neurons start firing and your brain perceives that interaction as if, as if it's happening to you. And therefore, your brain releases oxytocin because the, because the oxytocin doesn't know why those, you know, that's firing in the brain. They just know that, that you feel connected to these people, so they got the oxytocin. So now that third party just watching across the clubhouse now also feels bonded to both Duffy and to Hunter Pence. And that's another way in which team chemistry is contagious. Oh, it's such a great story. We're talking with author Joan Ryan about her incredible book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Um, Hunter Pence, one of those special players, without question. How powerful was that? You know, um, in the book, you talk about the real chemistry. You talk about the oxytocin, the, the testosterone, the cortisol, all this chemistry that happens inside. But it's all influenced by our environment. And uh, one of the yeah. interesting things I, I thought that you mentioned was, you know, talking about Hunter Pence, it, it just made me think of it, was the, the spot in the book where you're talking about veterans and the power of veterans and the, the need to make sure those guys are on board and kind of in a leadership role. And I remember one part with uh, Jim Leland you mentioned uh, where he's talking about uh, the dangers of not having the, the veterans on board with your master plan or them not feeling ownership. And he mentioned with a couple explicitives there that uh, it is <laughs> utter chaos. It is bleep, bleep, bleep chaos um, without the veterans involved. Guys like Hunter yep. Pence. And then, Joan, mm -hmm. I got to just mention this. We have to mention this. Your your whole idea of these super carriers, the chapter three super carriers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hunter Pence kind of reminds me of the story of Johnny Gomes. But Johnny Gomes, boy, now there's a special story as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, super carriers of chemistry. Because as you, you know, when I first started, I had a theory that, well, maybe this works like actual chemistry and that you could almost have a periodic table <laughs> right. of personality yeah. types. Right. Right. And so, you know, I made this list of about, you know, 40 personality types, you know, I don't know how many elements are on the periodic table, but you know, there's a lot. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wrote all that down and I thought, okay, maybe this is what it's all about. So, you know, I keep exploring that, I keep exploring that. And then, you know, finally ultimately come down to seven personality types, what I call archetypes. So, you know, sort of like the mythical archetype um, characters in, in, in literature. And, and so, um, so those seven archetypes are the jester who is, and, and each archetype serves a very specific purpose that fosters this chemistry. And most of the, most of the characters are, somewhat veteran players, but not necessarily. So the jester is, as a, as you might imagine, the one who can crack the well-timed joke, do the well-timed prank, you know, just kind of break the tension, get everybody laughing. The jester also, I think, is probably the most impactful archetyped archetype if you have a really good one yeah 
because the the jester can deliver very sharp criticism to a player who may be slacking off who knows what. But if it's wrapped in humor, that criticism lands a little bit more softly. And so the target (laughs) of that gets the message without feeling humiliated or ostracized. Like, hey, dude, you're still part of the team, but you got to buck up. You know, you got to be better. Right. Makes total Um, sense. Total sense. And then Hunter Pence, the Hunter Pence person would be the spark plug, the guy that right in the moment you need it, he gets the troops all charged up. He says the right things. He infuses them with the energy they need to really be at their best in that moment. There's the sage who is the, you know, really longtime veteran who's done it all, seen it all, and that anybody can go to him and he can put his arm around the shoulder and say, hey, you know what? It's going to be fine. You're great. You're going to kill this. And it's grandpa. You know, you feel safe going to him and asking every stupid question you have. And then on the other side is the kid who comes in like Matt Duffy or he does something other bouncing in and they're just in awe and they have all this energy because this is the greatest thing they've ever been a part of. And there's a cappuccino maker in the dining room and this is unbelievable. And all the other players remember how much they love this game. This guy reminds them, it's like, yeah, we are so lucky to be doing this now. There's the buddy, the nobody eats alone guy who makes sure every single guy on the team feels like he belongs. Hey, we're going out to lunch. Hey, we're going to a movie tonight. Um, there is the, help me out here. Um, how many do I have? That's, I think that's pretty much, I think that covers, covers pretty much it. We talked about the enforcer. Oh, the, is it other one, right? Oh yeah. The enforcer who is just, he's the guy who makes sure, you know, he's the keeper of the culture. Yep. We don't do it like that here. Yep. And then there's the warrior. The warrior, and the warrior the would one. be like, you know, a Derek Jeter or, you know, back in the day of Barry Bonds, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, well, especially Barry Bonds, you know, not necessarily a big team chemistry guy, but he represents the best of us. He represents what we all want to be out on the field. Yeah. I really like it. And that goes along with this idea of a periodic table. Wouldn't would I honestly, you know, when I read this, I was doing the same thing as you. I was sort of mapping this out and looking at all the different personality types. And I actually wrote names of players that I've worked with hands on through my time with the Blue Jays. And these guys exist. They exist exactly as you describe yeah. them. And they're all so so powerful, Joan. I just really, really appreciated this. And I often thought that, you know, if I were ever to get back in baseball, I would love to be sort of in the role of like a performance director, like, you know, really like player Mm -hmm. development director. And I would be communicating with the scouts saying, guys, look, here's what we have in the clubhouse already. Now we need talented guys who are the jester. Now we need a talented guy who's the warrior to fit into our chemistry, right? Because sometimes there's those gaping holes and sometimes you can't fill them. But boy, oh boy, when you get lightning in a bottle and all these roles are filled, well, heck, we know what happens. Magic happens, right? Well, you know, I, I, what I came to understand and, and, and really believe is that we can't hire for those. This is, a, this is really one of the problems is that you really can't hire for those archetypes. And yep. here's why. Yep. 
because the team itself manifests the archetypes it needs. So you could be a jester in one clubhouse or one office space, and you could be the enforcer in another because, you know, just as we said, you know, that when we're in interaction with people, we're all changed by who we're, who's around us. We become this slightly different person than, you know, I think I'm Joan. Okay. Well, which Joan are you, right? You're, you're, people around you are fostering uh, new things in you, creating a new you. And so that's what happens on every single team. We're all influencing one another every second of every day. So, so those archetypes just manifest themselves. And of course, the people who fill each one of those archetypes has no idea they're filling that archetype. They right. don't know, hey, I'm the I'm yep. the jester. Oh, I'm the spark plug. Yeah. You just are. And it, when I ran this list by oh, so many managers, coaches, players, executives, business people like you, almost every single one of them immediately named who were who were each one of those archetypes. It was it was amazing to me. Yeah. Joan, I really appreciate that. And you know what? I agree with you 100%. It cannot be forced, right? I think I've seen that before. I've actually been there in in player meetings where the manager or one of the coaches, hey, you need to be a little more like this or you need to be a little more like this. And it never, zero. It is never in my personal experience worked out. And I remember one Hall of Fame sort of type pitcher, like everybody would know, um, they asked him to sort of, you know, take ownership of the pitching staff and be a leader. But that wasn't him, Joan. And it, it failed miserably, no. as a matter of fact. It distracted him so much, he probably lost a few steps in terms of his on-field on performance. And it wasn't long before he said, forget this. I, I will, anybody can come work out with me. The door's always open, but I'm not chasing anybody. And boom, he was right. back in his stride again. So I totally appreciate what there you're saying. You and, and, and I love it. And I think when you talk about that to me, the stories, uh, uh, when you talk about, you know, the person might not even know or the person is sort of, you know, the environment, the story about Jeff Kent, I think that really really that's this story isn't it mm. it is a good story especially you know jeff Kent and barry bond but before we, we we move on i do want to say this that why is it important that anybody even knows about these seven archetypes right yeah it really is for the leadership and the leadership you know in the manager's office the front office and the leadership you know in the clubhouse you know those those really influential veterans. And why is it important that they know it? So that they can recognize, oh, that's that's how this guy who maybe is the gesture, right? Make it up. That's why this guy is so important to us because he is making our team better in a way that is never going to show up in the box score. And I, as a leader want to know the value of our players on every level. And so let's say he's going through, you know, a horrible streak or whatever. He is still contributing to the team winning and high performance because of what he does in the clubhouse. And a leader, you know, the manager can go up and say, hey, you know what? I just want you to know, I see you. I see how much you're contributing to this team. And I'm not worried about that, you you know, you're 0 for 27, 
I'm not worried about it. Just do what you're doing because you always, every single day, you make us better. Yeah. And boy, that keeps that guy going. Yeah, that is powerful stuff, Joan. And I agree, that's a leadership thing. We're talking with award-winning journalist and author Joan Ryan about her latest book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science of Soul and Soul of Team Chemistry. I love that. And you know, when, when you think about that, you know, you talk about Jeff Kent and sort of his reputation around the game. Then he arrives and you're right, inside of a a very special clubhouse and around very special yeah. teammates, he evolves into something he didn't even imagine he could be, right? I mean, that is a really, totally. really cool story, Joan. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, you know, that again was a big aha moment because you know, you alluded to it before. Um, there's this one player, a journeyman guy named Johnny Gomes, who bounced around the league for 11 years. And, you know, this uh, uh, a pattern emerged. His teams tended to win. And, and they did. And Johnny Gomes was literally a big part of contributing to that team, even though his stats totally suck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I called him a super carrier of team chemistry because he always helped create the chemistry um, in the, in, in most of the teams he played on. Now I thought, well, if there's a super carrier of chemistry, there must be super disruptors of chemistry because negativity is also contagious. Right. So, you know, who was top on my list being a Giants person was Barry Bonds. And I covered him as a sports columnist. And then I started working at the Giants the year after he left. And there was a lot of rebuilding to be done <laughs> after that, you know, with the steroid era and, um, you know, his just total hold on that team. So I thought, okay, he's my super disruptor. So I do all my research and, um, and then you think, okay, Barry Bonds is bad enough. And then for seven years, Jeff Kent, who's <laughs> right. like number two on Bleacher Report, worst teammates of all time. And Barry <laughs> Bonds is up there at two or three, you know, like they both are in the top 10 right. of the worst teammates of all time. And you think, how could this possibly work? But the Giants, when the two of them were there, yes, they were great players, actually won a ton of games. And I'm like, okay. How can this be? Because it goes against everything I'm thinking about team chemistry. Right. You know, they should have really just eroded every, uh, all the energy, sucked all the energy out of that team. That's not what I found. So what I found was that both those guys, even though they couldn't stand each other and actually had fistfights, um, one on camera in the clubhouse, um, they had amazing chemistry but only on the field. They have what I call task chemistry. And I think this is true in business and across the board that there's emotional social chemistry, which is what most human beings have because that's how we're wired. But there are people who don't, who just don't fit into that role, but they can have incredible task chemistry. So as much as Bonds and Kent couldn't stand each other, out on the field, when I interviewed both of them for the book, each one of them said, there's nobody I would rather have out on the field with me than that other guy. I mean, because both those guys really worked on their craft. They were totally devoted to their craft. And each one of them would chew through a catcher's mitt if it gave them even a little bit of an edge to win. They were both driven, driven to win. So much so 
and they influenced each other. You know, Bonds, when I said this, I said, you know, I, did you guys improve each other's performance? He says, well, I might have helped Jeff, but Jeff never helped me. <laughs> and I was like, of course, oh. right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's totally not true. Because the one year that Jeff can, and, and he's the first to admit that Bonds helped him because yep. he wanted, he said, I always wanted to be better than Bonds, even though I knew I couldn't ever be better than him. That's what my goal was. And he actually won MVP of the league one year, Jeff Kent. And guess what? The year after Jeff Kent won MVP, well, the years before that, you know, Bonds had won, I think, three or four when he was younger. And then he hadn't won for four years or something. Jeff Kent wins MVP. Bonds won it the next three years. (laughs) So nobody can say Jeff Kent did not motivate Barry Bonds to raise his game. Yeah, no, Joan, so fascinating. And I'm telling you, everybody who's listening here today and hears this uh, in the podcast form going into the future, uh, Joan, your interview and your perspective uh, that you that you give us as readers on Barry Bonds for people who never really got to know him or be around him. I, I was through the Blue Jays. He was over there. We saw him. I never got to know him as a person. And I don't think it was even possible uh, from what I hear. Uh, but again, uh, I've really, you know, early in my career, I really understood that I can't, I, in order to really, really get a feel for a person, you got to be around him. So I never did. Uh, I just heard the stories about Barry Bonds. For everybody who's listening, this book is certainly paged cover to cover worth it. But your conversation with Barry Bonds, what a perspective piece that is on him, but also on the different approaches to high performance. I thought it was incredible Joan on so many levels and it also gave me a little more insight into one of those you know one of those sporting anomalies that I just never had a clear picture of so I want to thank you for that interview uh, because it's fascinating on so many levels oh yeah that was that's I have to say that is my favorite chapter in the book just because you know as a journalist you're always you're always so happy to be surprised you're happy when you have an idea going in. I'm going to write about super disruptors and only to find out I was totally wrong. Right. Totally. Bonds was, was not a super disruptor as I interviewed like almost everybody on his uh, team over the years that they said, you know what? Barry was Barry. And he was on that Island of misfit toys. And the rest <laughs> of us had team chemistry. And guess what? Did we want Barry on the team? Of course we wanted Barry on the team. And you just had to say, well, that's, that's Barry. So he never diminished the team, but he also, he could have had a huge influence on elevating the team. So uh, he didn't make a lot of other players better. I mean, he did to some extent, because sometimes, I mean, he really would work with some guys who, came to him and specifically asked him, he would work with guys and he certainly influenced Jeff Kent, you know, just by motivating him. But, um, but overall, you know, he could have been a much bigger positive influence had he had a different personality, but he didn't. Would he have played better if he had a different personality? No. Right. You know, I think his personality drove him in a lot of ways. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, as much as I really, really couldn't stand him when I was covering him because he was just so rude and, and, and you know, just really treated people poorly, 
I've come to understand him in a much different way. And in fact, you know, we're kind of friends, you know, and, and we'll email back and forth and I understand so much more about him. And, you know, this really has nothing to do with team chemistry, but it has so much to do with how we, how much we think we know about someone and we don't. And one of the things I learned about Barry Bonds, and he was quite open with me about it. And so I'm not, you know, telling stories out of school, but he grew up with severe learning disabilities, severe, severe learning disabilities, and never was never discovered, right? His parents didn't know, like he barely could read. And to this day, he doesn't read well. And so then I thought, oh my God, can you imagine being that kid? You're black in an all white school. Your father is Bobby Bonds, you know, so there's a spotlight on you already. And you can't read. And you're going through one grade after the next, after the next, after the next. And he's so smart and so intelligent that he was able to navigate that by like, joining a study group and having them, you know, asking them, Hey, you know, what did you think of this chapter? <laughs> and then getting them to tell him what was in the book. Right. And so wow. if you, yeah. So if you feel like you are going to be outed as stupid, because of course, every kid with a learning disability, like my son, you know, you don't know, it's just your brain works differently and you're not stupid, but your brain works differently. And you are going to build up the biggest, thickest wall around yourself so that all of these college-educated, mostly white, almost all-male sports writers coming at you every single day at any moment exposing you for never hearing of, you know, whatever, The Great Gatsby or physics, you know, whatever it might be, that um, you are going to – you would rather be seen – as an asshole than stupid. And I really just looked at him very differently. And Joan, so so do I. And again, again, not knowing the man uh, personally, but just hearing other people's uh, opinions of what was going on. You you do get a real coarse picture of what Barry Bonds was all about, and especially in that clubhouse. But to hear your story, boy, oh boy, it just reminds me of, you know, I've got three daughters and I always tell them from, from the day they can understand uh, verbal communication, I've always told them, hey, never judge anybody until you get to know them. Then you can form your own judgment and then maybe just see if you can help out a little bit. That's been my our message, my wife and I, our message to our kids all along. Um, so I'm glad you wrote that because, boy, he might be one of the most misunderstood athletes of all time. Is that fair to say? But boy, oh boy. He had one focus, and that was to be the best possible Barry Bonds uh, every single night they played. Yeah, and and a lot of things can be true at the same time. He right. was rude. Yep. He treated people very poorly, even you know on the staff sometimes. Um, and he also was grappling with who he was and how to show up in the world and and all of that. So he is a complex totally interesting. And then, you know, I mean, it took me a year of building trust with him before he would sit down with me and do the interview. Um, but we did build trust and he became this guy named Barry that I could talk to about my son. 
And he was very, you know, empathetic and, I mean, just very, very sweet. Mm. And But every now and then, as I was doing that three-hour interview, though, he would tap the brakes almost as if it's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm getting too close here. And he'd tap the brakes and he would say, and this is in the book, he would say, um, you know, this is worth a lot of money, what I'm doing for you right now. And I was like, I know, I know it is. And I totally appreciate it. I, I, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, but he had to just remind me, right. Yeah. That, you know, this is a transaction here. Oh, Joan, you know what? It sounds to me like you looped him in, you looped him into your loops and you gave him the, you gave him that environment he needed just to share a little bit. So fantastic. And, and I want to thank you for that again, because that was one of the really, really catching points I mean, the entire book, again, cover to cover is fascinating, but um, to, to get that perspective of Barry Bonds, and you're right, to, to know that a lot of things can be true and still have great success. Yeah. And the fact that his teammates said, okay, this is Barry Bonds. And I think in one point in the book, I can't remember which player said it, Joan, but they say, hey, look, when Barry's on that field, he made all of us better, man, because, well, he was our yeah. guy. He was in our tribe, kind of, right? That's right. And he was the warrior, right? you know, and who right. wouldn't want him? Who wouldn't want him on your team? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he was so extraordinarily good, even before the steroids, because you'll say, well, yeah, he was great with steroids, you know. The other thing I, I say about steroids, and I do, you know, I'm biased now because I do, you know, really like him, um, is that I do think he should be in the Hall of Fame. I really do. I mean, the whole culture of that era was an absolute, you know, MLB, everybody turned a blind eye. Everybody knew everybody was doing steroids. And I think in some ways, Barry Bonds is being particularly punished because he performed better than anybody else who was on steroids, <laughs> you know? So does he get punished because he's so incredibly talented that he broke every record, which he never would have without the steroids. But do you, do you punish him because he broke records? And it makes no sense to me because the whole culture, was, it was a steroid culture. So you can almost not let anybody in, yeah. but you can't certainly keep out somebody who happened to be so incredibly talented that, you know, the steroids shot him into the stratosphere. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And that is a deep, deep conversation. I think one that will be raging, raging for years for sure. Yeah. But you cannot dispute the fact that, uh, man, there is a, a very, very special talent there, regardless of all, everything else that went on. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, you still have to hit the ball. Yeah, that's right. You know, and there were how many guys were on steroids who didn't hit the ball any better? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you do have to have that talent. But, you know, I get the writers who say, well, there's a character clause in there. And I'm like, okay, you know, but there are a lot of other criteria to getting in the hall. And if you're just focusing on the one thing that you interpret as character, Okay, but then if what if you focused um, only on character, right? What if you focused and you said, well, yeah, they can't really hit the ball very well. You know, they didn't. But man, they had great character. So he belonged in the Hall of Fame. Like you can't just pick and choose, you know, which um, attributes you're going to um, highlight as the one that disqualifies you. Yeah. 
You know, it's one of many criteria. Yeah, for sure. And Joan, you mentioned that whole thing on character. That's a special one too. That's a conversation maybe you and I can have at another day because that one runs deep as well. But it's a fascinating topic in the world of a performance. Well, just human performance as well. But you have to be careful with character, don't you? Because everybody says, we want character guys. We want character guys. Listen, we've seen some incredible, well, Barry Bonds being one of them. We've seen some incredible performances and some incredible teams having success with not such great character um, personnel on board. So, you know, you don't have to, I mean, there's a lot to be said for character and it's a deeper conversation for sure, but uh, you have to be careful how you frame up this whole thing of a character because uh, if your ultimate goal is winning, um, yeah, uh, you gotta be, you gotta keep things in context. Is that fair to say, do you think? Oh, it totally is. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, you have guys who like each other who can't play, you know, whatever. I said, well, of course. I mean, chemistry doesn't create talent. Chemistry maximizes, amplifies the talent you have. So, you know, I never say that chemistry uh, helps you win. What it does, it helps you elevate your performance. So it may be that you're the worst team ever, but if you have great team chemistry, which you can on the worst team ever, it's hard because, you know, it's difficult to just be beaten, you know, beaten to a pulp every day and, and keep your motivation up. But you can have a mediocre team with great team chemistry who performs at its very, very best. They may not win because their very, very best may not be, you know, competitive with everybody else in the league. Right. right. So, that's, that's... yeah, talent. Yeah. You oh, need no. talent. Yeah, carry on. And sorry, I was going to just got me thinking that's the, those are the harsh, bitter realities of sport right there. I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yep. It, exactly. It is. And, and, you know, one other point I do want to make is that, you know, when we talked about analytics and team chemistry and, you know, there are these two camps, you know, everybody's like all about team chemistry. The old school is all about team chemistry and the new guys are all about analytics. I mean, the cutting edge organizations, whether it's business or sports, understand that you have to have both. All analytics is useless, is useless without a highly motivated workforce, right? You can create the greatest strategy known to man, but guess what? Actual human beings have to carry out the strategy. So you need to get them working together. You need to keep them motivated or else your strategy, you know, is just this beautiful algorithm on your laptop. That's all it is. Yeah. People, people, people. We're talking with award-winning journalist and author Joan Ryan about her latest book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Joan, fascinating conversation today. And I like that remark you just made right there because it's all about the people. You have to have that environment. The leadership's in charge of so much and so responsible. And that's why I think this book is a must read for so many people out there who are trying to accomplish things in individually or in a group. Um, maybe to wrap up here, can we, can, can we sort of make the statement or is it fair to say, Joan, that team chemistry does exist? You've got some pretty compelling evidence inside of your book um, from MIT you know, where they talk about uh, their algorithms, as you mentioned, and the fact that 44% of team success can 
be associated with chemistry. And then, of course, uh, the mm. fault line research as well. That said, you know, according to their algorithm, well, again, that word, uh, good chemistry accounts for at least four wins over 162 games schedule in a major league baseball in major league baseball. Uh, those are pretty compelling numbers. And I think after you read this book, those numbers uh, stand true, Joan. They really do make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I'm still skeptical about, you know, anyone who claims to be measuring team chemistry um, because you don't really, you know, like the fault line research, I think is really interesting and, and probably has some merit um, if it's built upon, perhaps. But the problem is that unless you're really in the clubhouse and actually know what the dynamics of the relationships are, there's no number to put on a player because you don't know, you don't know the player. And even if you know the player individually, you don't know that player in relationship with his teammates, but what we can prove, and this is what I've finally ended up, you know, recognizing we can prove it exists through the science, not not through the numbers, Love but it. we can prove it exists over and over and over again. I mean, there's so much research and that's what took me so long is like one research paper was more fascinating than the other. And <laughs> the rabbit you know, hole, replic- you're down the oh, rabbit hole, the, the Pandora's hole. box. Yeah. I know. And it's not like a one off, Hey, you know, we came up with this, with this metric that measures the impact of team chemistry. It, it I mean, as far as I'm going to, it cannot be done right now, but I mean, it can point arrows toward this, but the science is real and the science is incontrovertible. So that's why, you know, I am very comfortable with saying that team chemistry exists. Now, do we know every facet of it? No. Will we ever know every facet of it? No. Just like with human nature, will we ever know every facet of human nature? No. I mean, the, the brain is, you know, the most fascinating um, machine in, in human history. And we will be studying that, you know, for the rest of eternity, I, I think. And, what, you know, it, and it, it is so interesting that we'll never lose, uh, we'll never be bored <laughs> studying team chemistry or, and studying human nature. Well, no, and as conversations like this, Joan, I think are just going to keep that ball rolling in. And I think, you know, building the momentum on this. And that's what this whole 2022 campaign for Crush Performance is here. You know, as we look at organizational team performance, this is a huge part of the puzzle. Joan, I really appreciate your comment of, you know, you don't really know until you're in the clubhouse. I agree with you. One of the things that I loved about uh, being a part of a major league team was just the everyday, the everyday being there. And, and of course, mm-hmm. the strength coach is a very, very special position in an organization. Mm-hmm. And I do think they're undervalued in so many ways. And I say that humbly, of course, but uh, we interact with every single player on the team every yep. single day. And you're a psychologist some right. days, you're a motivator some days, you're you're a put on the brakes and counselor other days. And, and it's a real special. So I was there and I, I agree with that statement. That's a powerful statement you made for anybody who didn't pick up on that. You really don't know unless you're there every day, but not just in and out. You can't even just a stop by flyby. You got to be there every day to yes. really get that ebb and flow. And I'm glad you said that, Jeff, because, you know, when we think about team chemistry in any, um, any culture, you know, business or, or sports, whatever it is, that chemistry is not built by the big gestures. 
it's, as you say, it is built every moment of every day, one piece, one little bit at a time. And when we see, you know, you mentioned, you know, the haircuts and the beards. Oh, we all have beards, you know, so we have team chemistry. All of that stuff, when guys go out to dinner together, oh, they're building team chemistry. You know what that is? What I've come to, to believe that when those guys go out to dinner together and they all have their beards, it's not, it's the evidence of team chemistry. It's not the cause of it. And sometimes I think we think that the beards and everything like is the thing that creates the team chemistry. It doesn't. It's the evidence that you have it. And that I think is an important thing for groups to, to recognize when you start to see that you're thinking, here it comes, it's happening. These guys want, they are choosing to spend time together. They're interacting in a way that is fun and that lifts all of them, that keeps the energy up. And you can't just write out a plan on a, on a piece of paper. It's that interaction every day. And it's like tending a garden. And, you know, and leadership books talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. It's that you don't just plant the bulbs and you walk away. Hey, I did my job. No, it's tending and tending and tending every minute, you know, giving a little water here, snipping, snipping back the leaves here. And you can't let it, let it languish at all. You have to always be all in. And, you know, my, my own I sum it up, you know, team chemistry and how you get it is that it begins with trust as in all relationships in our lives. Trust is the foundation of the pyramid because without trust, you can't bond. And that's, that's the next, the next step. Trust leads to bonding. And then once you have that bonding, then you commit to each other. But you can't commit to each other unless you've bonded and you can't bond unless you have that trust. Once you have them committed to each other and you're not committed to some goal off in the distance, whether it's, you know, the World Series or some sales goal, whatever it is. Once you've committed to each, you're committing to each other, not to that goal. And if you commit to each other, you're going to give your best every day because you care about that person next to you. It's like the military. You know, why do those guys stay on a battlefield? You know, when they're getting shot at and, and, um, and risk death every moment, it's because they do it. You ask any soldier who's been in battle, they say, I did it for the guy next to me, right? That's what it's all about. And that's what it is on a different level, obviously, you know, in every great team chemistry business, team chemistry, sport, team chemistry organization. That's what it's all about. That's the goal is to get to that level where you're totally committed to one another. Oh, Joan, I cannot think and I could not have scripted a better way to kick off our 2022 campaign of organizational and team performance. Just a fascinating conversation today, Joan. Listen, I personally just want to say I, I really appreciate your work here. I know it was a, it was a love of labor and 10 years of just, you know, un, unraveling this incredible mystery and, you know, just a fascinating way to start. 
Really appreciate your time today, Joan. I look forward to many more conversations now Now that we've sort of opened that uh, that doorway. Um, um, boy, boy, there's so many more things to discuss now. So I really appreciate you, your work, and again, the conversation today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks for giving me so much time. I really appreciate it. As you know, you know, I could talk about it forever. Yes, <laughs> much more to come, Joan, I promise you. Hey, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> no, anytime, Jeff. Thank you so much, Joan. Okay. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I've heard this conversation a number of times, and I always seem to pick something new up. Just great, great stuff. As a matter of fact, I know a couple of organizations and teams out there right now who should probably listen to this interview. They're struggling so much, and it's not because of a lack of talent. There's something internally going on, but again, that's one of the mysteries of sport and sport performance. We'll have to see about getting Joan on again here at some point to catch up and see what she's been working on. I'm sure it's as incredible as the work she did on intangibles. Okay, coming up next week, we go back to 2016 for an incredible look at the science of extraordinary athletic performance with investigative reporter and author David Epstein as we discussed his best-selling book, The Sports Gene. Remember, in sport, looking back to learn is an invaluable skill and it's a critical part of thinking like an athlete. I'm Jeff Grishel. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us for episode number one of our three-part Looking Back series. The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media, website and educational material produced and directed by Debbie Kershaw, Miss Crusher. Theme music, graphics, and video design by Noah Alexen of Nolexen Visual and Sound. And if you want to get all of the Crush archives and look back way, way back, Go to jeffcrushell.com. You can subscribe to the show, get all of our links, and follow me on social media. Search out Crush Performance. 